We are going to continue our time together um, through our summer sermon series, J.J. and the Prophets, as we look at some of the lesser known, smaller books of the Bible. We're going to do that by studying the book of Haggai today. So if you'd open up your Bibles and turn to there, it's in the same general area that we've been in for the last four weeks. And while you do that, I am going to set a little bit of context for you to help us take this in to get started. So when I was last with you, we uh, read together and learned from the book of Nahum. And if you remember, uh, God's judgment came against them because they were wicked, evil people. And and God tired of them and issued judgment against them and wiped the city out in 612 BC. Now there's a timeline in your bulletin. Um, you can kind of follow along. I do want to make um, one correction. The first date in there, 622, should be 722 BC. That's on me when the northern kingdom got carried off to Assyria. So that was 722 BC. So 612 BC, the Ninevites get wiped out on God's judgment. Five, seven short years later, 605 BC, God now is starting to issue his judgment against his people of Judah. They have fallen into disobedience. And we're going to see over a period of about 19 years, God sends in the Babylonians um, to, to issue judgment against them. And through a period of three exiles, the Babylonians basically take over the kingdom of Judah. They haul off the people into exile to Babylonia. They wipe out the city. They destroy the walls around Jerusalem. They wipe out the temple. Everything is left a mess. And they are gone. Complete destruction in 586 BC. 586 BC. Now what we'll do is we'll fast forward about 70 years they are in captivity. And at the tail end of that captivity, the Persians come in and they take over the Babylonians in 539. Three short years later, King Cyrus issues a decree and says, okay, you Jews, you can go back to your land. We're going to allow you to go back, reestablish as a people, reestablish your practices. We're going to allow you to do that. And that was in 536 BC. Well, about 50,000 people take him up on an offer when those doors open. It, It feels like a pretty good number, doesn't it? But the truth is, there were several hundred thousand people that were in Jews that were in Babylonia at that time. See, it would have been a hard decision to make for them, apparently, is they would have been there 70 years. That's a couple generations of people. They, uh, they would have put down roots. They would have had homes. They would have had crops. They would have had a means of supporting themselves. They had friends. They had families. They, you know what? Thanks for the offer, but we're going we're gonna to hold tight. We're going to stay. But these 50,000 people said, yep, we're going And think about what those 50,000 people were going back to. They weren't going back to much. In fact, they weren't going back as much. They weren't even going back as a nation. They were going back as a a small remnant of people, a, a, a shadow or a fraction of what they used to be. They're going back to a city that's been destroyed, that's been leveled, it's unwalled, they would be unprotected, 
They don't have a king. All that they would have when they went back was the religious system that they were given, the Old Testament law in which they would continue to use to obey God, to bring him honor and glory, to worship him. And they would, ha- they would reinstitute that. And to reinstitute that the right way to worship God, they would have to rebuild the temple. And why would they have to rebuild the temple? Well, in the Old Testament, there were about 613 laws, right, were laid out for them on how to repent and how to worship God. Well, 200 of those, about a full third, required there to be a temple for them to be performed. Well, these faithful people, they understood it. When they get back in 536 BC, they start to build the temple. But the book of Ezra tells us, if you read through that, things weren't exactly smooth sailing when they went back. They started, and then what happened is the Samaritans around them started to say, you know what, we'll help you guys. And the Jews were like, no, 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 no. We're fine, thanks, but no thanks. Well, the Samaritans said, huh, all right, then we're gonna come up against you. We're gonna oppose what you're doing. And they even went to the Persians to get them to come up against the people of Judah while they rebuilt the temple. And then things started to get hard and things started to get difficult and ultimately the rebuilding of the temple came to a grounding halt. But life for the Jews rolled on. And over the next 16 years, slowly but surely, the city of Jerusalem started to come back to life. People went about their business They built houses for themselves. They planted and harvested crops. They started having children. And life just rolled on day after day, year after year, all without the temple. And they started to get used to it. Then in those 16 years, after those 16 years, in 520 BC, Haggai shows up on the scene with one primary message to give to the people of Judah. You must rebuild the temple. And he does this in laying out in a short book, it's only two chapters, he gives them four sermons or four messages focused on rebuilding the temple, but the theme, the thread that we are going to pull throughout all four of them is about obedience and our responsibility to be obedient to God with what he asks us to do with what he has given us. All right, that's the context. So before we dig into the text, let's take a moment and pray and ask God to lead us. Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for the story that you have written through the book of Haggai. We ask you to apply, help us apply it to our lives. Father, and to check our spirits about how we are obedient to you with what you've entrusted to us. Father, we ask you to lead us this morning. It's in your son's name that we pray, amen. 
All right, so these four sermons, these four messages can really be outlined this way, and it's in your bulletin, right? Chapter 1, verses 1 through 15, the first message is focused on the temple must be rebuilt. The second message is the temple will be filled with glory, chapter 2, verses 1 through 9. The third message is that the people will be purified and they will be blessed. That's chapter 2, verses 10 through 19. Then the fourth message is the promise of future prominence for Zerubbabel. And that's the last three verses, 20 through 23. All right, we're going to dig in and we're going to look at each of these sermons and see the threat of obedience. And we're going to challenge ourselves on how we can apply this to our lives. All right, here we go. Haggai chapter 1, we're going to read the first four verses. In the second year of King Darius, on the first day of the sixth month, the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai to Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. This is what the Lord Almighty says. These people say, the time has not yet come for the Lord's house to be built. Then the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. Is it time for you, yourselves, to be living in your paneled houses while this house remains, remains a ruin? Right? So clearly, God is not happy with what's going on. And he's not happy with their excuse either. What's their excuse? Well, God, it just, it just isn't time. It's just not time, God. You know, those Samaritans, they are just kind of making things hard on us. And you got these Persians and it's just too difficult. We just, we just can't get to that right now. We'll, we want to be obedient, but now, now's not the right time. We'll, we'll, we'll get to it. We'll, we'll get to it. And if it's inside of God's head... <laughs> You can hear him saying, are you serious? It's not the right time to do what I asked you to do. But you had time, it's the right time to build your house. It's the right time to take care of yourself. It's the right time to panel your houses. Why why does he make a big deal about paneled houses? Well, get this. In that day, it was common as it is today is to build houses out of limestone. And, and limestone's an easy material to work with. It's easy to carve and very easy to make smooth so it could look nice from the outside as well as the inside. So there's not a need to have paneling on the inside of your house, right? It's, it's an excess. It's a, it's a nicety. And these people had it. Their homes were paneled. And much of the paneling at that time would have been made of cedar, right? To make the house smell nice, not only look fancy. Well, where does cedar come from? Not Jerusalem, Lebanon. So if they would have had cedar paneling, it it would have been more expensive, right? Because they would have had to go and get it. They would have had to bring it back. It would have been more time consuming to go and get that. He says, so you don't have time? Now's the the right time for my house? 
You're going you're gonna to tell me this as you sit in your paneled house? And then Haggai leans into them in verse 5. Look at verse 5. He says, now this is what the Lord says. Give careful thought to your ways. Give careful thought to your ways. He's saying, you people really need to evaluate your lives. Your priorities are out of whack. You better consider your ways. You are working on your own house. Well, my house lays in ruins. That's not a smart decision. And because of that poor decision, you are now suffering the consequences of it. Look at verse 6. You have planted much, but you have harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but never have your fill. You put on clothes, but are not warm. You earn wages only to put them in a purse with holes in it. So what's the result of your decision? Curses came upon you. You work You're working hard. You expect much, but you're not getting much in return for your work. You want to know why? Let me tell you why. Verses 9 to 11. You expect much, but see, it turned out to be little. What you brought home, I blew away. Why, declares the Lord Almighty, Because of my house, which remains a ruin, while each of you is busy with his own house. Therefore, because of you, the heavens withheld their dew, and the earth its crops. I called for a drought on the fields and the mountains, on the grain, the new wine, the oil, and whatever the ground produces, on men and cattle, and on the labor of your hands. Now I could see their wheels turning. Oh, I get it. I understand why there's no crop. I understand why there's not enough food. I understand why there's not enough to drink. You did it. You blew everything away. And God's saying, yeah, I do that kind of thing. Those are called consequences. See, when you're disobedient, I may choose to blow away the things that you hold dear, that you work hard for. You made a bad decision. When I was growing up, my mother had a saying. Every time I made a bad decision, so I heard this a lot. She would say, she always say, you made your bed. Now lie in it. 
And that's basically what God is saying to the people of Judah. But he gives them, yet again, a second chance. Jump back and look at verse 7 and verse 8. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. Go up into the mountains and bring down timber and build the house so that I may take pleasure in it and be honored, says the Lord. He's saying, come on, guys. You've got to build the house so that I can have pleasure in it, so I can be honored in it. Now, God's not saying so I can be honored by the timber, that I can be, uh, take um, um, notice of or care much about the structure. That's not who he's taking honor in. He's taking honor in what could go on in the structure. The repentance, the worship. See, it's not about the structure. It's not about the timber. It's not about the stone. It's about what the people would do there. And don't miss what God is asking them to do, right? He's saying go to the hills, right? So you have to go somewhere. That means you have to leave where you're at. So these people got to be thinking, hold on, God. We, we, We don't have enough to eat. We don't have enough to drink. We're working hard. We're not getting out what we want. And now you're going to ask me to leave my family, leave my fields, leave everything to go into fields to get timber to build a house for you? That's going to leave my family exposed. They may starve to death. The crops may falter even worse than they are today. Surely you wouldn't want me to risk my family to go to the hills to get timber, would you? Well, yeah. You see, it didn't have to be this way. If you would have obeyed me the first time when you left Babylon and had the resources from selling everything you had and used what you had to rebuild it the first time, but no, you used that stuff on you. Now you gotta go get the stuff to build the house for me. And you gotta go do that. And yeah, that's gonna expose your family. That's gonna expose your crops. That's a consequence to not obeying me. Come on, God, seriously? What you were asking me to do doesn't make sense. Do you ever have that conversation with God? I know I have. You're asking me to do what? If I'm obedient to you at work, that could could ruin my reputation. If I'm obedient to you in school, I could lose my friend group. I may not get invited to the parties. I might have to sit by myself at lunch. If I'm obedient to you, God, come on. That doesn't make sense to me. I don't understand that. But see, 
Those are the rules that God sets. Obedience is required, but understanding is optional. Obedience to God is required, but understanding is optional. What I find amazing is, is that, the, that the Jews even find themselves in this predicament in the first place. Think about it. The, the northern kingdom was carried off in 722 BC. So surely they know 100 years later that what happened to them never to be seen again. They just saw God issue punishment against Nineveh in 612 and wiped them off the face of the planet. They just spent 70 years in captivity, given a second chance to go back and reestablish what God wants them to, but they don't do it. But here, yet again, God gives them that second chance. He's saying, this may not make sense to you, but trust me. Be obedient to me. And look at verse 12 to see how they respond. Then Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the whole remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the message of the prophet Haggai. Because the Lord their God had sent him and the people feared the Lord. They obeyed. They actually obeyed and started to rebuild the temple. Now I'll challenge you. Go back and study the prophets. This is a rare occurrence. We don't read often, oh, prophet Isaiah, thank you for your word, thank you for your exhortation, thank you for your challenge. We are going to do exactly what God told you to tell us to do. It very rarely happens. But we see it here. You know why? At least what I believe why? Because I think these 50,000 people that left the comfort of what they knew, went back to a city that laid in ruins, that they really loved the Lord. They were willing to sell all their stuff, leave friends and family. There were a couple hundred thousand decided not to do it, but these 50,000 did. They chose the more difficult route. Their hearts were in the right place. But somewhere along the way, they got sidetracked. They knew what God wanted. They wanted to obey him, but life just took over. Circumstances got hard, so they made different decisions. See, those things can happen to good people like them. And it could happen to people like you and me. See, as believers... We've got the Holy Spirit living inside of us. And we know in communication with him, we know deep down in our being what God expects of us. What God wants us to do and to do those things in obedience to him. He speaks to our hearts. See, we're not oblivious to what God wants us to do in our lives. 
but many times we simply don't do it. Sometimes it's out of pure disobedience. We don't like what God is. We hear him. We just don't like it. Story of Jonah, right? You're asking me to do what? No thanks. I'm out of here. I'm going a different direction. But sometimes in our lives, it's like what happened here with the Jews. Right? We, 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 we get busy with our own thing building our own house, building our careers, building our reputation, building our families, and putting those things above what God is asking us to do. I had a conversation over the last couple of weeks with two different people, and I asked them if I could share this. They said yes, but I'm not going to tell you their names. But I, this, this friend of mine, I challenged him, asking people, come on, we need you to get involved. We need you to get plugged in. Use God's gift to you. And he looked me in the eyes with all sincerity and said, you know, Scott, it's really even hard for me to make it to church right now. We're going to be coming into the fall. And, you know, the kids play hockey. And and ice time is tough. And the only ice time we got is Sunday mornings. I'm, I'm not going to have time to get to church, let alone serve on Sunday morning. I looked and said, you know what? Your priorities are out of whack. Another conversation with a friend. It says, a challenge to him. You gotta get engaged with a group of guys. Get involved in a huddle. Get your family involved in community. Get involved in a life group. He says, you know, this is is just a bad time for me to make that commitment. I'm just on the verge of, of getting this promotion you got, I got two kids going into college in the next three years. And if I get this promotion, I will be set up. So I can't commit because if that phone rings, I'm going to have to respond. And if I don't, there's no way that I'm going to get that job. See, we let our priorities, our priorities, we get them out of whack with what God is asking us to do. We focus on us and not God. And the longer we do that, the easier it becomes. And this is my first point, if you're following along. It says, if we are obedient to God, to be obedient to God, we have to put the important things first. The first Things have to come first. We have to find time to be in prayer, in community with God, reading his word, serving others, using our gifts that he has entrusted to to us, not for our selfish gain, but to bring him honor and glory. Right? If we put these things first, only then could we expect blessing in our lives. Right? They're either first in our life or they're not. It's your decision. And just like the Jews, God chose to blow away what they worked for because it was not the first things. But they ultimately obeyed. The question for you is, will you with what God has entrusted to you? We have to put the important things first. 
All right, it's the first point. All right, now the second point, we find it in the second message found in chapter two, verses one through nine. Let's start by reading verse two of chapter two. Speak to Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, to Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to the remnant of the people. Ask them, who of you is left who saw this house in its former glory? How does it look to you now? Does it not seem to you like nothing? So here we are, we're 30 days later, they're rebuilding the temple, and he asked them a tough question. Do you guys remember that old temple? The one that Solomon built? How big it was, how glorious it was, how fancy it was, how amazing it was. What are you working on? And that's a risky question for a leader to ask, isn't it? That could be discouraging as you sit and toil away with the stuff only that God's given you. Skills and the resources, trying to rebuild, thinking that you're rebuilding to this grand thing that used to exist in the past. They knew it was a, was a shadow of what existed. And it would be easy for them to become discouraged because they would never be able to build something like Solomon. Solomon was the richest person in the world and who were they? But he makes sure this doesn't happen. Look at verse four and five, chapter two. But now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord, and work. For I am with you, declares the Lord Almighty. This is what I have covenanted with you when you came out of Egypt. And my spirit remains among you. Do not fear. Jump down to verse 8. The silver is mine. The gold is mine, declares the Lord Almighty. The glory of this present house will be greater than the glory of the former house, says the Lord Almighty. And in this place, I will grant peace, declares the Lord Almighty. God's saying, don't worry about my plans. You focus on what I asked you to do. You do your part. You work with what I gave you. You work with the skills that I've given you. You don't worry about what my plan is. You don't worry about what the temple used to be. I will take care of all that. Remember, I have the gold. I have the silver. I'll take care of all that. You remain faithful with with what I've entrusted to you and I will take care of the rest. In fact, I'm even gonna make it greater than what temple was destroyed. Trust me, you do what you can do. I'll take care of the rest. And that's our second point, right? You do what you can do. Let God do the rest. See, here's the deal here. So I think it's easy for us to get discouraged. 
We see what other people have, that they may have more things at their disposal. They may have more talent than you. Or, or you don't understand God's plan, the big picture of really what he's trying to accomplish with what he's asking you to do at this point in time in your life. And it's easy to become discouraged. It's easy to become displ- complacent. See, God, I, I know, I feel this calling to, to work with the, with the homeless, but come on, I'm one person. I'm not, gonna, I'm not gonna solve the problems with homelessness. What about people in recovery? God, I, I feel that, but I, I don't want to do, and I don't, I don't know what to say, and, and who am I? I can't, I can't fix the issues that people struggle with in addiction. Yeah, you're right, you can't. But I can. You be obedient with the calling I've put on your life, with the gifting and passion I've given you, and you let me take care of curing addiction. You let me take care of dealing with homelessness. You just do your part. You do what you can do. I'll take care of the rest. All right, that's the second point. The third point we find in the third message and it's kind of a fun, wow, I can't see you guys have these on I got. So chapter 12, I'm sorry, chapter 12. Chapter two, verses 12 to 14. It's kind of a funny message. Listen to this. It says, if a person carries consecrated meat in a fold of his garment, and that fold touches some bread or stew, some wine, oil, or other food, does it become con- consecrated? The priest answered, No. Then Haggai said, if a person defiled by contact with a dead body touches one of these things, does it become defiled? Yes, the priest replied, it becomes defiled. Then Haggai said this, so it is with this people and this nation in my sight, declares the Lord, whatever they do and whatever they offer there is defiled. So here's what I believe God's saying here. He's saying holiness doesn't transfer, but our sinfulness and our defilement can. So put it in context of building the temple. Right? He's going, those people are outwardly doing now what I asked them to do. They're building the temple. They're putting the timbers in place. They're putting the stone in place. But he's unhappy with what they're doing because apparently their hearts are aren't in the right place. Because the way that they're acting, the way that they feel about what they're doing is defiling it. They're not gonna be made holy by their actions of building the temple. It's a heart issue. In doing those things with an unpure heart can bring defilement to the work. And that's what we do. Right is 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 obedience is is not this righteousness and holiness is not this 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 outward action that we do. It it, it it's that and it's the heart that goes with it. We can we can defile the good things that we do with bad intentions. If you're going to serve the homeless because you feel good about yourself. 
instead of bringing honor and glory to God, you can defile the work. When you gave your offering this morning, did you do it out of a glad and sincere heart, wanting to honor and bring glory to God for what he's doing in your life? Or did you do it because you're going to get a tax break? See, it's the attitude of what we do. And he's calling them out here. And basically what he's saying is his third point is our hearts have to be right. For us to be obedient, it can't just be outward stuff. Our hearts have to be in the right place. That the things that we do in obeying God have to be done with the intention of bringing honor and glory to him. Not to make ourselves feel better about us or, or, and the things that we have done. It's got to be to bring honor and glory to him. Our hearts have to be right to obey God. Lastly, our last point, his message is found, his point is found in his last message. It was given on the same date as the third message. And this message is given directly to Zerubbabel. And the context here is important. If you remember in Old Testament, Zerubbabel, right, is an ancestor of, of King Jehoiakim, right? He's a, he's a, uh, he was cursed because of his disobedience. And basically he says none of his descendants, none of his sons would become king. So Zerubbabel knew that he was never going to become king because of this. You can read about it in Jeremiah 22. But what I love about this is is Zerubbabel, knowing that he wasn't going to be king, he still was obedient. He led the people back. He was obedient in rebuilding the temple. He did the hard work. He did all of those things despite that there was no expected blessing that was gonna come on him. And I love that, right? He was sitting in Babylonia with his friends and with his family. He could have made the decision of the couple other hundred thousand people that someone is gonna take the easy route. I'm not gonna be king. I'm not gonna be the leader. They're not gonna install me on the throne. Why am I gonna go through the headache and heartache of taking these disobedient people, dragging them back to Judah in the city of ruins, unwalled, unprotected? Why am I gonna do that work? But he doesn't do that. He is obedient. And look what happens. Look what God does as a result of that. Verse 21 and 23. Tell Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, that I will shake the heavens and the earth. I will overturn royal thrones and shatter the power of the foreign kingdoms. I will overthrow chariots and their drivers. Horses and their riders will fall, each by the sword of his brother. On that day, declares the Lord Almighty, I will take you, my servant Zerubbabel, son of Sheel, Tiel, declares the Lord, and I will make you like my signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord Almighty. And I believe God is going back and addressing that curse that was placed on Jehoiakim and his descendants. 
because of Zerubbabel's obedience. He's saying, I am going to bring a king, the anointed one. And you, Zerubbabel, because of your obedience, you're going to represent me. You're going to be the signet ring. You're going to represent me. You're going to be in the genealogy of that king. And sure enough, Zerubbabel never did get to be king. But his kids, 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 grandkids would get to be king. And that was King Jesus. And what greater blessing to be in the family line of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. See, Zerubbabel persevered. He was obedient. Although he would never be king, he led anyway. Although he'd never see the temple in its final glory, he did all the hard work. He persevered through it. He trusted that God would finish it in a way that would be more glorious than the previous temple that existed. He knew it was about God and not about himself. And God blessed him for it. He was obedient and God blessed him for it. So that leaves us with the question, are we being obedient? Are we following and being faithful to God and what he's entrusted to us? And I want to give us a moment to wrestle with that. I'm going to ask you to close your eyes and I'm just going to ask some questions and I want God to deal with your heart, to speak to you through these. Are you putting the important things first in your life? Or are you having a hard time Finding time to pray, to be in God's word, to serve him with the gifts he's entrusted to you. Not a good season for you to give. Are you expecting much right now, but you're left wanting? If so, maybe God's blowing away what you're working so hard for. Are you focused on doing what God has resourced you to do? Even if you can't see the bigger picture, even if you can't understand why he's asking you to do that. Are you making excuses on why you're not? Why you're not good enough? Why you don't have enough? And that your efforts really don't matter? Is your heart right Are you doing what God wants you to do with the intention of bringing honor and glory to him? Are you doing outward things to feel better about yourself? The truth found in God's word is that God blesses obedience. Father, we thank you 
for your word this morning. Father, we ask you to encourage us in those areas where we are being obedient, for us to, to, to continue on, to press on with the hope of making you famous. And Father, in those areas in our life, in our lives where we're not being obedient, we ask you to convict us, to be real with us, to challenge us. Because deep down inside, God, we do want to obey you. We do want to be a blessing to you. And we know when we can persevere that your blessing will overflow. God, we know that you know that we'll never be perfect. And that's where your gift of grace comes in. And we thank you for that. Thank you for hanging with us. And thank you for giving us the Holy Spirit, which will allow us to persevere through everything that you've challenged us to do, to bring honor and glory to you and you alone. It's in your son's name that we pray together. Amen.